Welcome back to another Sound Truth interview. I'm your host, Adam Miller, and today I'm joined by Neil Shenvey, who is the author of a book called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. It's a great resource and one that I think is really present, uh, prevalent within our culture today as there are a lot of questions as to the the necessity for Christian Christianity as a part of our culture in general, but also to have these questions being raised by many of our uh, parents and grandparents who call in and ask about their children and their grandchildren who have uh, gone to secular universities and have rejected the faith that they were raised in. So I know that this is a pressing issue and it's one that is obviously pressing to our guest today. So Neil, thank you so much for being a part of the Many Voices for that one message. Well, thank you for inviting me to speak, Adam. Why don't you get started by telling us a little bit about yourself, because I actually think your background and your story is is really going to be interesting to a lot of our listeners who are struggling with this question. So you did not grow up in a Christian home, so tell us a little bit about how you came to the faith. No, I I had great parents, but I grew up in a non-Christian home. I went to uh, university at Princeton and I would have called myself uh, spiritual, but not religious. And I, I would have probably called myself a Christian, to be honest, because, you know, we live in the U.S. <clears throat> we everyone here is Christian. If you're not a Muslim or you're not, so, so. But I had very little knowledge of anything related to Christianity. I thought Jesus was basically a good moral teacher. I hadn't really. I read the Bible just as to say I did. I think when I was like uh, 11, I read it from cover to cover just because I was like, well, I can now say, yes, I've read the Bible. I'm very intelligent, uh, <laughs> but I was not a, a believer. And uh, I, but at Princeton, several things happened to sort of um, pave the way to my eventual acceptance of the gospel. Uh, one was that uh, as a freshman, I think, there was a book table in front of my dining hall that was handing out free books, and I got a copy of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. And I loved that book. It was really helpful to me. Uh, I met my future wife, Christina, during my senior year, and she was a missionary kid. And so that just meeting her and knowing her really helped me to understand what Christianity was about. And then we actually went out to graduate school at UC Berkeley, and that's where I eventually became a Christian. And I began attending church with her, and I saw very intelligent Christians, professors, academics, postdocs, and I had to take the gospel seriously. So all those three things led me to eventually uh, come to Christ. What's interesting about it, I think, is the fear that many of our listeners have with their children going off to, I mean, Ivy League schools and to, to really high academia, that their, their their faith is going to be undermined in some way. And you sort of had this completely different uh, path that led you to faith. So uh, kind of knowing that concern that our listeners are having, there is a risk, right? There is a challenge when you go to secular school because secularism is not going to be teaching the foundations of our faith. That's right, and it's, it's worth taking that threat seriously and therefore equipping your kids. Uh, in, of course, I'm not even saying you have to send your kids off to some secular university, but if you choose to, <clears throat> definitely equip them before they go. There's tons of great resources out there um, to help solidify their faith, to give them the reasons for um, knowing that the gospel is true and maintaining their confession throughout the college years. And I think, really, though, you can't escape it in this culture, uh, keeping your kids within a sort of a Christian context and a Christian environment, it's not a guarantee that they're not going to uh, encounter these obstacles. So I'd say everybody should be equipping their kids to handle these objections to the faith. 
Yeah, it's not relegated to the universities anymore. This is pervasive. It's it's in every culture. It's in the friend groups. It's in online, where, wherever they're uh, at online. So this is something that mm-hmm. is actually pretty pervasive, especially with many of the prominent Christian leaders who have uh, deconverted over the past uh, you know several years. This is something that has been an influence in their life from from very early on. So this is a real question that every parent needs to be aware of, but also that teenagers need to be able to build a foundation understanding as you did, uh, you evaluated these uh, questions and concerns and took them seriously because you had uh, a whole community of people that were taking it seriously. Right. And I think one of the things that my book aims to do is to show that that Christianity is intellectually credible. I wanted to write a book that not only could could students read it, high school students, college students, people outside of uh, the university, but I wanted to write a book that they could hand to their professors Mm. and they'd feel comfortable giving this book to people at the highest levels of scholarship. And it, and it, you know, it has footnotes in it. Uh, It, 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 it interacts heavily with prominent non-Christian and atheist secular scholars in the sciences, in uh, biblical studies. And so it's clear that I I tried to do my homework. So again, if you hand it to someone who's a very prominent scholar, they're not going to read it and say, this is like, this is just simplistic. It's 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 made. It's written at an eighth grade level. I, I want it to be accessible and yet to have some kind of intellectual heft. So again, that that was my goal, and I think it seems to come across that way. People people that have read it have said it. You can tell that you're a scientist by training. It's very systematic, very logical, very evidence focused. Hmm. I, I think that you and I had completely different track records. I was grow, I grew up in a Christian faith. I grew up in the church, and uh, I I kind of adapted a lot of those propaganda type messages that were very mm-hmm. winsome and crafty, but within a closed circle. So my a lot of my early arguments for the faith were were very not critical thinking. They were mm-hmm. very inclusive to our group and kind of uh, insular in that way. So we have completely different kind of paths to the same point. But I think you're absolutely right where critical thinking is so important because now I think young people that are searching for the truth are are very much scrutinizing uh, to a high degree what is being said. Yeah, and that's why it's so important for parents to um, inoculate their students against the best secular arguments. Gone are the days when you can just hope that your kids won't encounter. It'll keep them sheltered. They're not going to be exposed to these sort of pathogens. Well, that's gone. The internet has dissolved yeah. all of that, even the ability, even in theory, to keep your home totally protected from the quote-unquote worldly outside influences. That's not gonna, that, that never was really the case, but today especially, it's impossible. And so it's important for um, parents not to just give their kids superficial answers. You do not want them to first encounter uh, arguments for uh, you know the, the the fabrication of the gospel stories. It's all it's all myth. It's all a legend. You don't want them to first encounter that as a freshman in college. That is a, is a recipe for disaster. You want them to have heard that claim, you know, in seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade, and then be able to answer that. If they get just they get bowled over if the first time they have ever even heard of that objection is when they're in religion one hundred and one. Mm. We are living in a culture where we're seeing a huge rise of of children who grew up in the church walking away from their faith. And there have been a lot of studies that found that it actually happens far earlier than university, where Mm -hmm. teenagers and even middle schoolers are developing these arguments. 
they're in there amongst their friends, they're in the public school system, whatever is the cause, their rejection of the faith starts much, much earlier. Uh, do you have a um, kind of a bead on parents where this is, this is something that we've often overlooked. This is obviously something we've been naive about, thinking that uh, it's just their adult years that we have to worry about. This happens a lot earlier in most cases. Right, and I actually have an acquaintance online who taught middle school at a Christian school, and he said as a fifth grade teacher, he would have a box that he, people could just submit anonymous questions. They'd drop it into the box, and the students could ask him questions about anything. And in fifth grade, he did that and answered a lot of good questions. He's an apologist. But then he said he moved the next year, he was teaching sixth grade, and by sixth grade, the box was always empty because the kids were too afraid to ask their questions. Hmm. And so I just taught a camp for an apologetics boot camp, three days, like five hours a day, to teenagers, ages, ages like I think 12 through 18, about all of these arguments. The same material is in my book. And at the end of the camp, we had Q&A, and I was gratified that they asked a lot of good questions. Um, but some of them were actually pretty basic theological questions. These are kids that are have very committed Christian parents that are going to church, they're in youth group. They still have a lot of questions, and thank goodness they were willing to ask them. But it just it reinforced my conviction that we need to have space and a forum where kids can ask what they might think are dumb questions, and it's completely judgment-free. We, we're here to answer your questions and not to give you flippant answers and not to say, how, how can you not know that? Just say, no, we want to helped convince you that this is a credible faith that can withstand scrutiny. I, I want to touch on that. I, I realize it's a little bit outside of the realm of your book, but I think it's still pertinent to the book in the sense that I, I do believe, as you were mentioning, that these kids are curious. They have questions. They want to know. But getting them to elicit those questions and actually talk about these things can be actually pretty hard. We can't just allow them to happen organically in the spontaneous moment. You actually have to do a little bit of digging. You actually have to probe yourself as a parent, a grandparent, a youth leader, a pastor. You have to be able to actually tap into those questions and do a lot of the digging yourself. And sometimes I think it is just a change in venue. So maybe with their parents, even though you've made yourself very available and open, they might just feel uncomfortable asking you. Mm -hmm. But if they're in an environment where they're, you know, in my class, the, you know, it was a hundred students and then me. So they outnumbered me. Yeah. But I think maybe it was less threatening because they felt like, well, I'm surrounded by other kids and it's less of an awkward thing that like well if it's one-on-one -on -one, they're going to quiz me and i'm gonna, but it's no it's a it's a it's an environment where i feel safe asking questions also i'm not gonna they don't know me i'm not gonna report to their parents that you know what your kid asked no they, it's totally uh, a, a non-threatening environment they feel like after three days i'm knowledgeable uh i i can probably answer their questions having had some uh, with some thought behind it so yeah I, i'd encourage parents to not don't let yourself be the only people who are there for your kids. Mm -hmm. Have youth leaders, have uh, other parents, your, fr your friends, adult friends, who your kids feel comfortable talking to about those questions. Mm. I would say this is kind of a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but one of the other elements I think that can be considered in this environment is to, to divide the sexes, to get the boys with the, mm. just the boys and the girls with just the boys, because you are the girls with just the girls. You eliminate a lot of those distractions, a lot of those kind of uh, relational things that are kind of a big component to uh, girls not wanting to, to sound like they're 
you know, trying to be smarter than they actually are and guys really just not trying to be funny just to impress the girls. So I think sometimes, and, you know, again, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's really important, especially for a lot of parents who want to be able to help their kids. They, I, I think that there's a drive now. There's a lot of books been written on apologetics recently, and I love yours. But I think that uh, there's a market for it now because parents are really concerned at what the world is that their kids are forging. Mm. And I think, like I said, the, I think this book is written, it is accessible to motivated high school students. So um, like my son could read it. The material I gave in this class, ages 12 plus, it was the same material. Um, but I do think you're like, well, I don't know if my kid could handle it. Yeah, but you could hopefully. So. <laughs> It's a book that would equip you as a parent to have answers. And if your kid asks you a question, you say, oh, that's chapter three. And so you could just turn to my book, for example, and you'll see, you know, there's tons of footnotes. And you'll say, well, you know, he answers it here, but then he gives, you know, three other books that are just on this topic exclusively. So it's a resource in that way also. Yeah, parents and grandparents might be intimidated by the idea of apologetics, but uh, the, they ought to be more intimidated by the results of not being able to provide honest answers that are mm-hmm. thought out to the next generation. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about how you've structured the book here and uh, how it's laid out. Tell us a little bit about the arguments that you've kind of uh, fract- uh, factored into this book as uh, that are present really within the, the environment we're living in today. Sure. So it's structured around three, four arguments for the truth of Christianity, and that was important to me. I didn't want to simply convince people that some kind of God existed. I wanted to say, no, Christianity in particular is true. It's the biblical God. So the four arguments that sort of frame the book are the trilemma. That's C.S. Lewis's argument that Jesus was either Lord, liar, or lunatic. We have to make a choice about him. The second argument is the resurrection, that Jesus actually is historical evidence that Jesus rose physically from the dead. The third section is on God and revelation. So those are the sort of standard arguments for how do we know that God exists, but they're presented within a framework of the Christian God. It's not just a vague God, it's the God who's revealed himself in scripture. And then the final section is about the argument from the gospel. So I make the claim that the gospel itself is the best evidence that Christianity is objectively true, which is an unusual, I think it's a pretty new argument. And so I argue that, you know, believe it or not, you actually have the best reason to believe that Christianity is true already in your life. Just the gospel, this message that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Um, that, that narrative explains things at a, at a deep existential level, like you're aware of certain things, the story of your own life and of reality, that makes everything come into focus. And so, that, so, so basically I'm arguing that that central message of the gospel explains reality in a way that other religious stories and other religious traditions just don't. And so that's actually can give us good, great confidence that Christianity is, is actually true. Um, so those are the four main arguments that I advance, and they're all independent, although they build on one another. So obviously they, they work together. So Jesus uh, made these claims about his, his divinity, and he claimed to be the Messiah. And then he also rose from the dead, and it fits into this overarching biblical narrative about the fall and redemption. And then we're presented with this message that speaks to our hearts, that we're sinners who need a Savior. All of those four things go together to make an extremely strong case 
that Christianity is is true, showing that Christianity is true. Hmm. You know, what's interesting is your story, your testimony sort of kind of applies to the the first argument really quite well. Obviously, uh, you're quoting C.S. Lewis, who you said was Mm -hmm. instrumental in you coming to the faith, but also uh, your ability to call yourself a Christian in some way because you were culturally an American and not Muslim or Buddhist Mm -hmm. or whatever, but you identified as a Christian and yet still had major objections without knowing who Christ claimed to be. So that's a pretty mm-hmm. unique kind of attract to come into this argument because you were on the side of someone who claimed in some way to be a Christian and yet had never really evaluated the claims of Christ. Right, and I would have probably just said, I, 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 think, I, when I think back, I probably would have said I believed in God, but at, when I met my future wife, Christina, who was a Christian, that's when I realized I'm not a Christian. When I realized, <laughs> wait a minute, the way that she's talking about Christianity me, real, makes me realize that I don't think about God that way at all. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, she, and she was really the first person that I can, I think I ever met who was a, you know, tr- truly a Christian, um, you know, a, a, a believing, living it out um, Christian. And so that, that, but that encounter was important for me because it made me for the first time say, I can't just pick some, you know, I can't just build a, build a God. I can't say like, build a bear. I can mm-hmm. go in and just make my own God up and make my own religion up and call it Christianity. Christianity is a real thing, a religion with a set of beliefs that you have to subscribe to, and I don't. And so I think that's actually getting me to stop identifying as a Christian was an important part of me eventually becoming a Christian. It's not just a default cultural thing. Mm. That's really important. And I think it's really important for our our parents and grandparents to hear about why why you had to come to that realization, because I think they're putting a lot of uh, stock in the fact that their kids claim to be Christians, even though they're they don't actually believe the claims of Christ, nor are they living in a manner that is uh, consistent with following Christ. Those mm-hmm. two things that you just mentioned, uh, it's very easy to call yourself a Christian without ever actually looking at Jesus and seeing his claims about himself. Mm-hmm. And. I think that essential, and this is why um, the last part of the book is so important about the gospel being evidence for Christianity. Uh, one of the things that these book, apologetics books in general and apologists can do, uh, unfortunately, is to make it all intellectual. It's all mm-hmm. about showing you evidence, good evidence, that Christianity is true, but then leaving out the most important part, which is that it calls forth a response. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, well, that means that this narrative of creation, fall, redemption is true, which means that you have to respond to that. You can either reject it and say, no, I'm not a sinner. I do not need a rescuer. Or you have to embrace it at the deepest possible level. And so that final section is, and it includes the, the, the last part of the book, is about, well, how do you respond then? You know, this is what Jesus has done objectively. Are you going to continue to reject him or are you going to embrace him? There's no other way. There's no third option. (laughs) And C.S. Lewis said this too. You can either fall at his feet and call him Lord and Savior, or you can spit at him and call him a demon or dismiss him as a lunatic, but you you can't just pat him on the head and say he's a good moral teacher anymore. Mm -hmm. So my my goal was over the course of the book, the end of it is to bring it back and say, now you're faced with a choice. Are you going to recognize your need and surrender to him or continue in your rebellion. Um, and so it is, it is my hope, of course, that people read it and become Christians. That's, that's yeah. my goal. And that Christians who do read it are then strengthened in their faith. Mm. 
You talk a little bit about the moral argument here. Um, that seems to be one that has, I mean, that's one that I grew up with hearing this moral argument for, for why God existed. So explain to us a little bit about what you mean by that and why you approached that in the book. So the moral argument is another one that I think is important because it speaks to us at a very deep, again, like existential level. So, for example, you can embrace the, um, you know, the, these arguments for uh, the existence of a first cause. Well, the universe is here. It wasn't eternal, so it must have come from somewhere. Where did it come from? It came from a creator. You can embrace that argument, and it doesn't really affect your life very much. It's like, okay, I can believe in some just distant spirit who created the universe and kind of left us alone, doesn't care what we do. Well, that's right. It doesn't affect anything in my day-to-day life. But the moral argument speaks to questions of right and wrong, good and evil, and choices we make every single minute of the day. How are you going to live your life? Are you going to do what you know is right and good, or are you going to do what's selfish and evil? And so the moral argument basically says, if God doesn't exist, then morality, moral categories, right and wrong, good and evil, don't objectively exist. They Mm. don't. But they do exist. We all know it. And therefore, God must exist. He must be the source of those objective moral values and duties, things that you ought to do, ways you ought to live. This was C.S. Lewis's argument in Mere Christianity, and it goes back a long time. Uh, and But I think and I ex- one of the things I do in my book that's maybe somewhat unique is I, um, and this I do this throughout the book, I give the argument, but then I immediately go into, here are the five objections you're going to hear to this argument. So the atheist could say this, they could say this, they could say this, and then I respond to those objections. And sometimes I even respond to those responses. And so I, I go through these iterative rounds of saying, not just here's the argument, but what's the, what's not just what's a response, but what is the very best atheist response? Or what's the set, those are five best responses. Um, because again, I don't want them to go into the public square with this, what they think is this awesome argument and then hear <laughs> A rebuttal they've never heard by it blown away. Like, wait a minute, you didn't prepare me for this. So I want to prepare them as best as I can to answer, not to not just give the reasons, but then give them reasons to respond to the objections. And that's a, that takes a lot of work, uh, but it's also admirable. I love the way you wrote written this book because addressing those requires you to be intellectually honest. You can't create mm-hmm. these ad hominems and create these these fake uh, figures to attack. You really have to uh, bring about uh, an argument that will stand within the culture that we're living. I, I'm curious because we're living in a culture right now, as you talk about the moral argument, we have to have a definer of morality in order to have any moral standards. But we're living in a culture where that seems to be changing every single day. I mean, you just have to watch the news and realize that all of a sudden the terms and definitions of right and wrong are completely off the map. So we're living in a unique culture. How does that moral argument offer answers to the culture that we're currently in? One of the things, I think I actually heard it a long time ago from Mark Dever, who's a pastor in um, Washington, D.C., but he said that we need to be confident that God's written his law on our hearts. Yeah. We all have consciences. We do. We, we suppress them. That's true. Paul says that too in Romans 1. But they're there. And so we don't have to say, well, man, what if people deny that morality exists? They will, they will do that. Of course they'll say, no, I don't believe in right and wrong, good and evil. These are all just social constructs. They'll say that with their mouths. But we know that's not true. We know that they encounter the same moral reality that all of us do because we're made in God's image. And so we have to start from that assumption, that truth, that no, those categories are really out there and we all encounter them. And that what they're doing, like all of us, is suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And again, not just 
singling out atheists. We human beings naturally do all do that until we're converted. And so, uh, so in the book, again, I respond intellectually to those objections, but I also point out that even the avowed moral relativist who will say, I don't believe in good and evil and right and wrong, their, their actual behavior does not reflect that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's an inconsistency when they, when they because you'll say, people will say, well, I don't believe in right and wrong and good and evil. Those are all social constructs. And this is a, this is bigotry. This is evil, wicked hatred. And how can you do that? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe I'm just living my truth as a bigot. <laughs> but so there, there are many cases I show them in the book where, where mm-hmm. you'll catch people uh, invoking moral categories even after denying them intellectually. And I'll mm-hmm. say, wait, what's going on? The answer is they're running into the same categories that all of us have as human beings made in God's image. And I actually quote from an atheist author named Steven Pinker. He's a Harvard psychologist, wrote a great book called The Blank Slate, where he, in his appendix, points out that categories of right and wrong and good and evil are human universals. Just from an anthropological perspective, all human cultures realize there is a moral law. Now, they differ as to what the content is, although there are wide agreement on things like you shouldn't rape, you shouldn't murder. But the point is, that's the human experience. We, we know there are things that are right and wrong. And we may not have room for that in our worldview, but that just means our worldview is wrong. And mm-hmm. as Christians, we should say, well, no, we have the right worldview, and it explains your experience properly. Mm. I've, I, I was growing up in the Christian church years ago, always hearing these warning signs. We're, we're going towards Sodom and Gomorrah. We're leading to this state where the, the world has completely rejected God. And I would just roll my eyes because, you know, I was— I would all admit now I was pretty naive back then uh, to see how truth had been undermined so much, even just decades ago, to now be in a place where the the standard for truth is constantly being changed and uh, ripped out from underneath us. It's a lot harder to fight for those moral arguments and those truth claims when people are constantly being shifted on on unsolid ground, and we really are living in a time where ultimately the the devil's attack is to attack any foundation for truth. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I would say I think Christians can then be reactive and defensive and try, try to make the case that no, no, really, really, some things are right and wrong. But I would just say, say take us take a deep breath and realize that they're at war with reality. Then they, at a deep level, they know that these truths are there, these moral truths are there, and they're suppressing it. But it's, it takes, in some sense, effort on their part. They're they're living in a way that's at variance with reality. I think Francis Schaeffer said that reality is what you bump into when you're wrong, mm. and we're seeing more and more people bumping in hard into realities, and sooner or later, uh, they're gonna well, hopefully, they'll wake up and say something's wrong with my worldview because this isn't making sense. And that's why I think Christians, even if in the moment when you present, say, the moral argument, you say there are certain things that are good and evil, right and wrong, they reject it, but you've hopefully put a stone in their shoe. And they're going to say when a year, two years, 10 years later, when something starts falling apart, they're like, maybe something, they'll go trace it back and say, maybe my problem was denying what I knew to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, again, I, I think that we should not, we don't have to be quite so defensive. We can say, I am standing confident in what is true and what God has revealed, and then operating and arguing from that position uh, that this is why we know, we actually already know that God exists, even though, again, our natural inclination is to suppress that knowledge because why? Because we all know 
we're on the wrong side of God's law. <laughs> it's, if we were, if we thought we were awesome, I think we'd be totally willing to say, yeah, yeah, I, I, there is a moral law and I obey it. This is great. But because we're sinners, that's why we suppress the truth because we know we're on the wrong side of, of, of not of history, of God's law. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's why um, we tend to, we, we, it's like the person, it's like the, uh, there's a funny story about a guy who's, you know, the engine light is on his car. Like the blinking is flashing red, blinking check engine, check engine. So he gets a piece of electrical tape and just tapes over it. Just, mm-hmm. well, I can't see it anymore. Well, he is the problem gone away? No, but he has suppressed the problem because he can't yeah. see it. So we are doing that uh, as a culture and as individuals. We, we, we tape over the check engine light. It doesn't make it go, the problem go away. But it makes us it makes us bother us less until the car breaks down. Mm, I absolutely love that answer and that illustration because it's absolutely right. There's a concern and there's a fear that our world is going towards darkness and going away from God. But there are natural consequences for that that end up resetting itself, right? It ends up getting to a place where shame and and consequences and actions cause people to turn from their wickedness and turn to Christ, or as the societies as a whole collapse underneath uh, this world philosophies. I have a lot of pastor friends who are really concerned where the church is going to be 20 years from now with all of the things that are happening in our world. And I said, you know, we're just going to have to stand and keep preaching the truths, verse by verse, passage by passage, and just ac- accept the fact that the world eventually is going to either go their own way or come back to these truths. But we can't change the truths in order to keep up with the, 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 the sort of trajectory that the world is going in. And it would, be a, it would be unloving to try to change the truth for the sake of popularity, because one thing that it's interesting in, uh, is to think of Acts 17, when Paul enters Athens and sees the cities so full of idols, it says he was deeply distressed or moved or troubled in the spirit. And there's a, I think it's ambiguous, like, because it's, it's, he's angry, but also saddened by what he sees. And I think that's a great mixture of emotions, because we should be angered by evil in the culture. We should also be deeply heartbroken, both. Because when people break God's law and people ignore reality, they're breaking themselves. We mm-hmm. were made to obey God's law. We were made to live to live the law, a righteous life. We're on, and when we don't do that, when we reject that, we, yes, we incur God's wrath. We also, in His judgment, we also ruin ourselves. And so we can look with not just not just frustration and anger, but also with compassion and say these people are ruining their lives just and also just like I ruined mine what are you are you righteous no I'm also a sinner I also do these same things uh, disobeying God's law and breaking my own life and so how much more than should I have compassion on people who are just like me apart from God's grace Mm. for any of our listeners who are asking the question oh why believe? Why this book? You know, apologetics is hard. I've got a lot of other problems I got to deal with. Is this really that big of an issue? My kids aren't asking the questions. My grandkids aren't raising those concerns. Is this really a book for them? I would say they aren't asking them yet. Mm-hmm. That yet is that's for the hey. I mean, if they never do, if you're one of the one percent of families that the kids just never ever question these things, well, that's great. I mean, and that's true. True, seriously, that's wonderful. But I think the vast majority of, of kids of, uh, will, will ask these questions at some point, and you want to have prepared them. And so, yeah, by no, if you don't want to buy my book, that's completely fine. <laughs> there are tons of great books out there uh, on these topics. But definitely, please, I'm begging you to equip these kids. It's not just Neil Shemby talking. There's a biblical imperative to be prepared. Be prepared 
think of a reason for the hope that we have in us. It's First Peter three fifteen and sixteen, and so it takes preparation. Is that something that you just just do it? No, it takes preparation. It takes investment. Uh, and what what's more valuable uh, a way to spend your time than to equip yourself and your kids to defend the gospel and then and also just to give yourself confidence that no this stuff is really true i mean it's amazing when you look at the bible through a apologetic lens there are plenty of passages where paul like in in luke chapter one verses one through four luke's purpose in writing to uh, writing the gospel of luke and then in acts and theophilus his purpose is to give christians certainty about the things they've believed he's saying yeah you believe these things but look no they're really truly true and here's the re- here's why here's how you can know that so there's tons of um, a biblical imperative saying we need to be prepared to answer questions. We need to know the truth and be prepared to defend it. And so just definitely do that as a family. Of course, you would quote Luke, uh, Dr. Shenvey, right? Um, yeah. You would go to someone who was an academic creating those arguments. But for, for any of our listeners who are uh, already in the place where their children have rejected the faith, they're already raised these arguments, they've already bought a hook, line, and sinker into these arguments against the faith, and, and then, as parents and grandparents who are saying it's too late, um, I've, I've already lost that bridge. It's already burnt down. What, what would you say to them? One thing I would do, um, when this, is, this is a great advice across the board, uh, is that I often find people are more receptive to having conversations or doing anything if it's a mutual. So I actually first got involved in apologetics uh, by interacting with an atheist on his blog. What we did was he first recommended a book for me to read, and I read an atheist book, and then I recommended a book for him to read. And then he, I don't think he ever read it, but I read his. <laughs> the point is, oftentimes in these situations, rather than just saying, here's a book, read it, why don't you say, hey, I'd like to understand your views better. Can you give me the best book that you know of that will articulate your views, and then I'll read it along with you, and then, Maybe that'll open them up to even, maybe not even open to saying reading your book, but maybe if you do that, then you can say, now next, can we read this book together? So it's a great, it's very non-threatening because you're offering, well, no, give me the things you want me to read and I'll read them and then we'll, and I'll read, and you can maybe read the book that I'm recommending and do it together and you can talk about it over coffee, whatever. But it's a, I think it's a very non-threatening way, especially um, that, that offer to, well, help me understand your position. I actually met a guy who's a Mormon a few months ago, and um, I, I said I, he found out I was an apologist, and we talked about the gospel and the difference between Christianity and Mormonism. But then, I, rather than saying, "Well, just read my book," <laughs> it, I said, "Well, actually, I have studied Mormonism a little bit, but I'd love to know more. Can you give me the best book defending Mormonism?" And and he ended up he ended up moving. But the point is that was a very it, all I'm, I'm asking him. So that I can read it from, and truly for my benefit, because I, I want to know more about Mormonism, not because I think it's true, but because that helps me to engage Mormons. So in the same way, that might be a great way for you to engage your non-Christian children, grandchildren, etc. Mm. That's great advice and, and something I've implemented myself, you know, allowing somebody to articulate their own point of view and then to talk to them allows them to have the definition of their their point of view so that you can address it as opposed to attacking a you know uh, 
a straw man and mm-hmm. characterizing them a certain way and then not even hitting the mark. It's very, very helpful to allow that conversation to flow. But uh, to our listeners, you should probably read this book before you pass it on because you need to be uh, challenged to understand the arguments as well. So get a copy of Why Believe uh, by Neil Shenvey. Uh, Neil, with that being said, could I ask you to pray for our listeners and uh, pray an encouragement over them as we are navigating some really strange times in, in the culture that we're living right now with a lot of questions and uh, to how to, to know the answers the Bible gives us ultimately the, the hope as in the spirit to understanding. So would you pray for our listeners to that end? Sure, I'd be happy to. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, this time with Adam. Uh, I pray for all the people hearing this, that they would be encouraged to know that the gospel is true, that Jesus, you're worthy of our confidence, and uh, that you um, you are in control of everything. And if people have children or grandchildren who have uh, strayed from the faith and abandoned it, I pray that you would call them back. We just think, take comfort in the fact that you're our shepherd and we're sheep. And the Good Shepherd seeks after those that are lost. So we pray for um, all those kids uh, who, are, who I think people are praying for, that you would bring them back. And uh, I pray that um, we would be equipped, that we would take the time, invest in learning how to defend the faith with reason and evidence. But more than anything, Lord, that we'd simply invest in, in our relationship with you, that we would um, take the time to pray and to read the Bible and, uh, and obey your commands. Uh, because this is just one of your many commands to us, and Lord, your commands are good, and they're for, um, for your glory and our benefit. So Lord, I pray that we would this be one part of our discipleship. Uh, thank you so much for rescuing us, and we know that we fall short every single day, and we depend on your grace. So um, bless us, and um, bless your word in your name. Amen. Amen. We've been talking with Neil Shenvey about his book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity, a great resource, one I can highly recommend to you to get a copy of yourself. So let us know by giving us a call, 508-362-7070. And Neil, I can't thank you enough. I I love not just your books, but also your content online. If anyone wants to find out more information about you, where should they go? Uh, you can just Google Neil Shenvey. I think I'm the only Neil Shenvey in the world right now. Uh, so it's N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. And I'm on Twitter too much, but you can follow me on Twitter to keep get keep abreast of what I'm reading and writing about um, these days. But yeah, the best way is just, pro- I know I have a website too. You'll find my website and I have all my contact information there. So yeah, just Google Google me. I don't think I ever type in an actual uh, uh, web address anymore. Everything just goes right through Google or whatever search engine yeah. I'm using. And it's always, uh, you know, it's easy enough to just click on the link. Uh, but we've been talking with Neil Shenvey. His book is called uh, Why Believe. You can find out more information again uh, on the book by heading to our website at songtime.com. So, Neil, thank you so much for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Thank you, Adam.